The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 10. The word of God speaks to us. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we, impart wisdom, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. This is God's word to us. Thanks so much. Uh, at our members meeting this summer, a lot of you guys were alerted to uh, a friend of ours that was going to join us on staff, Mr. Kevin Colley pastor, central pastor of church planning and leadership. And so he is now officially with us. And uh, we have five congregations. And this man is uh, a rich-hearted, deep-hearted man that really loves Jesus and pursues him. And uh, I've known him for years, and I'm so grateful to get to get to serve. I don't know why I said get to get to twice, but that's how excited I am. And uh, I'm so excited to get to serve with you. Thanks, brother. Would you guys first just welcome him? And then if you're cool with just extending a hand, let's just pray for him for today. Father, we thank you for this friend, this man, this brother, this pastor, all that you've poured into his life, the ways that you've um, broken him, the ways that you've crippled him, that's just brought out the fragrance of Jesus. And so we bless him today. We ask that you'd fill his heart up. We ask that uh, he would preach like a fire shut in his bones. And that as he preaches, God, it would be worship to you and yes, glory Lord. to you in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. amen. Thanks, brother. Hey, it is uh, it's really good to be with you. Let me tell you what I've been praying for us since Charlie just prayed. I won't pray over his prayer as if it needs to be negated or one-upped or something. But I, I have asked God all week long that in the preaching of his word this morning, he would manifest his power among us. And when I say the power of God, I don't mean like some kind of feeling that you have in your body of like, oh man, maybe that's the power of God, or some kind of virtue, but I actually mean all the resources of the one true, infinite, holy, perfect God that are marshaled together and manifested among us for God's glory and for our good. I, I mean, that kind of power that God would manifest his personal presence and power among us. Because if we understand what Paul's saying in this text, this must be, must be the center of our hope, 
the center of our identity, the center of our rhythms as a people, and the essence of everything we're walking in as followers of Jesus. So I have legitimately and literally prayed that God would manifest his power among us. That as he manifests his power, we'd be set free. Some of you would be set free from addiction or bondage to anger and resentment and unforgiveness. But God would heal our bodies. We would literally get what Paul's saying of like, oh, I want to bend everything about my life such that God's power is manifested among us. And God is seen to be great and glorious. And that's such good news to us that we high five that message instead of anyone trying to see us as being great or glorious. That's where we're going today. Is that okay with you guys? Can we do that? Okay, so open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 if you closed them. If you don't have a Bible, if you look in these windowsills along both sides of the room, we've got Bibles there for you. You can grab one and not just use it this morning, but you can take it and keep it and make it yours. I'm going to have us in this text of Scripture for most of the time we're here together this morning. And as you turn there, you're launching the app on your phone or whatever. Let me just remind you if you've been in this book before or tell you if you're unfamiliar with the Scriptures, this is a letter that Paul wrote to a church in the city of Corinth. Paul had a long-standing relationship with these people. He'd been with them and taught and pastored among them for about 18 months. And now we see this correspondence, which is one of several pieces of correspondence that existed between Paul and this church, where he is answering questions that existed among them and addressing concerns from them. The Corinthians had written Paul letters and said, hey, we got questions about this. We got concerns about this. Or people from the church at Corinth had bumped into Paul in their travels and said, hey, do you know about this thing going on back in Corinth? Could, could you speak to that? And so that's what Paul has been doing in his letter thus far. He's going to get really specific in the chapters to come. But what he's talked about from the gates is he's reminded them, hey, this is what I preached among you. The, the church at Corinth was gathered around the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he said, hey, I, I want to remind you what we preach. And, and the previous verses that we looked at last week, verses 18 to 31 of chapter 1, Paul is literally saying, hey, here's the content of my sermons. Here's the content of of what I preach to you. And in our passage this morning, Paul is still talking about his preaching, but he's not talking about the content so much as he's talking about the form. Paul is literally saying, let me explain to you how I preached to you. And he tells them why he preached, how he preached, what he preached. Look at verse Five with me, if you would, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says, I did all these things, verse 5, so that, here's my purpose, Paul said, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul's saying, hey, everything I've said to you, Everything I've taught you, even the way I taught you, was designed so that your worldview, and, and I literally mean the thing you build your life on, 
Because we talk about faith and the teaching of Jesus and the wisdom of God sometimes as if it's just stuff that we could like take or leave, write in a journal, highlight in the Bible and not really mess with. But Paul's saying, no, I I told you to build your life on this. He said, "I, I gave you a worldview that wasn't based on the teachings of men. It was based on the power of God. And I did all that so the power of God might be displayed among you. And God get glory for that, and you get ultimate and eternal satisfaction from that. That's Paul's point. If you hear nothing else from my mouth this morning, hear that Paul was after God being glorified as his power was manifested in the church when his people built their lives on him and not on the passing fads of worldviews that the world offers. You may be sitting here this morning going, well, my faith doesn't rest on anything. I'm not a follower of Jesus. No, 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 don't let yourself off the hook so easily. Every single human being, whether you're a Christian or not, lives by faith. Faith means like, what do you lean on? What do you press into? What do you believe will bear weight in your life? Now, tragically, most of us have faith in ourselves or faith in human progress or faith in the next elected official or faith in our children's performance or faith in something else. Paul's saying, hey, everyone lives by faith all the time. He wants our faith to rest in God's power, not our own. And so what I want to do is I just want to unpack for you how Paul props that up in this section of Scripture. And I have three simple points I want us to walk through. I've never been good with slides or this kind of stuff in my life. The guys that are running the slides this morning asked me, so do you have any points? I was like, well, I hope I have. I hope I have some kind of point. Otherwise, I'm just going to be yelling at a blank-faced room for a long time with nothing meaningful to say. Yeah, I have points. I don't have slides, but I have points. So if you can walk with me, here's my three points, okay? Point number one, I want us to talk about Paul's style. Like, why? Well, we're going to get into that. Why did Paul preach the way he preached? And what did it have to do with the message that he preached? So first and foremost, we're going to talk about Paul's style. Secondly, we're going to talk about God's wisdom. And then thirdly and finally, we're going to talk about our response. Why does Paul preach the way he preached? How does that reveal the wisdom of God? And what is the wisdom for God for us? And then thirdly and finally, how do we respond? So let's look, first things first, at Paul's style. And I want you to look with me together at verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians 2. I'm just going to read it out loud for you. And, and as, we, as we see Paul's style, you're going to see like three components of his style. I'll just put them out on the table for you and then we can walk through them in these verses. Paul talks about eloquence, he talks about weakness, and he talks about power. Look with me. Paul says, and I, when I came to you, brothers did not come preaching to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. Paul said, I didn't come with impressive words or persuasive speech. And here's something that's amusing to me, if nobody else. I think it's amusing that Paul spends a great deal of time in this letter 
arguing that he wasn't eloquent in one of the most eloquent books contained in the Bible. I mean, this book is unbelievably compelling grammatically, linguistically. His vocabulary is beautiful. He gives us phrases that we still use and walk in today. This is unbelievably beautiful literature. So Paul doesn't mean, hey, when I came to you, I was stupid. If you look again in verse 4, he, he talks again, he says, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. But he doesn't mean he was being unintelligent. He doesn't mean he was being incoherent. He doesn't mean he was being unpersuasive. Paul is, despite his protest, very eloquent. What he's saying is, the way in which he marshaled his words was to draw all attention to God's glory, not his own. Paul said, hey, I lined up every word, every phrase. I thought about every concept and its connection to every concept that preceded and every concept that followed. And my goal in every single one of my words was that you would hear me speak and you would encounter God's power, not Paul's impressiveness. Like it actually takes unbelievable skill to write that way. But Paul says, I didn't come to Corinth so that you would think I was the man. Paul said, I didn't stand on stage and preach so I could drop the mic and walk off the stage and somebody put a cloak around me, James Brown style, and I'd be worshipped among the people of Corinth. Paul says, man, I used every word, not so you'd be impressed with me, but so that God's power would be revealed among you. He said, I didn't come to distinguish myself among the people of Corinth or separate himself above the preachers of Corinth. Paul says, I didn't come to win a preach off. I came so that you would hear with the most focused clarity possible. Jesus Christ crucified alone alone is worthy of you building your life upon. Everything else you build your life upon will fail you, will depress you, will disorder you, will leave you completely hollowed out. Paul says, that, that's what I want you to know. Why, why did you not come with persuasive speech, Paul? Look at verse two. I decided, Paul says, and this is me paraphrasing, to make Jesus Christ the conceptual, gravitational center of every word I spoke to you. Paul says every word was oriented so that you might be impressed with him and not with me. Now here's what's crazy. Paul goes on to say, hey, it's not even that I wasn't eloquent among you. My speech wasn't impressive and my presence wasn't impressive. Look at verse three. He says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now Paul's weakness is something he discusses all over the place. 
He says in Colossians chapter 1 that he bears something in his body that literally preaches the weakness of man in contrast to the strength of God. We see that whatever his weakness was, and we don't know what it was, it's been amusing to me my whole life that most preachers tend to think that their weakness was Paul's weakness. But we don't know what his weakness was, bottom line. We do know that his weakness was used against him because in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, hey, the people that are throwing shade on me, the people that are running me down when I'm not there, they say stuff to you like, wow, I mean, Paul, dude writes pretty impressive letters, ever been in his presence? Yawn. He's unimpressive. Paul says, man, I am unimpressive. I am weak. And something about Paul's weakness was such a burden to him that three times he tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, he asked God to take it away. Hey God, will you take this thing I carry that announces my frailty in my body, will you take it away from me? Three times I asked, Paul says, and three times God said to me, no. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. And hey, Paul, check this out. You know that thing that you're wishing I would take away from you? I gave that to you so that my power would be perfectly displayed in you. Paul said, I didn't come to preach to you an impressive message. I came to preach to you an impressive Messiah. And I'm not impressive. And they obviously knew that. But he goes beyond that because his weakness wasn't just physical maladies or whatever else he carried in his body. He said, I was with you, verse 3, in fear and in much trembling. Now, I don't know what was going on with Paul. I don't know if this was something he struggled with constantly or if this was something that was unique to Corinth. What I do know is in Luke's account of Paul's time in Corinth in Acts chapter 18, we know that Paul was so gripped by fear to preach in Corinth that the Spirit of God had to come comfort him personally and say, hey man, don't quit preaching. I've appointed to save people in Corinth. Go on doing what you're doing and don't be afraid. Paul says, hey, I don't have to put on airs. I don't have to lie. You guys saw me. I was weak among you. And I was trembling and afraid. And Paul says, that's okay by me because my aim was to demonstrate the spirit of God among you and his power. In fact, this word demonstration that Paul uses is a technical term. It's a term that you use in rhetoric to talk about how you make this convincing proof and then you make this convincing proof and then you make this convincing proof and like the, the, the flip at the end is the demonstration. It's the whoa when everything comes together. And Paul says, hey, I, I didn't have any convincing proofs. I told you that only God can heal what you have broken. I told you Christ crucified is the only way for you and for the world to be right. And my flip, the, the reveal moment, was not some amazing illustration or rhetorical flourish. It was the presence of God manifested among you. Paul says, the way we know what my message is all about is what God did in you through it. 
Can you imagine what that was like? Some of you can because you've experienced the power of God. Paul says, I, I, I was with you with demonstrations of the Spirit and of power. And people are like, well, what does he mean? Does he mean miraculous signs and wonders? Of course he does. He's gonna say later in 2 Corinthians that I was present with you with all the signs of an apostle. I performed miracles among you so that that would testify of God's anointing and calling and power in me. So of course he was with them and ministered in power. But I think the power he's referring to specifically of the demonstration of the spirit and the power was the transforming power of God in their lives. Meaning like, hey, what was compelling about Paul's sermons was not the mic drop moment at the end, but when the Spirit of God captivated you and you started loving people that you had sworn you would never love and forgiving people that you swore you would never forgive and asking forgiveness where your pride had so gripped you before that you didn't care what anybody thought about you in that moment. That's the kind of power of God that Paul says was on display. And he says, hey, this is the point. That's the main point of my preaching, that this power would be seen. Like I long for that power to be seen here. I, I long for God's presence to be revealed among us in a way that we're not debating about whether that was God or not later. But we see love increase and lives transformed and identities made solid where they're porous or hollow or frail or weak. That, that's, in fact, that's why I moved my family here. It's like I, I know that the the pastors in this church long for the power of God to be demonstrated in ways like that. And we've seen like testimony of this even in the short time I've been at Frontline. I mean, just a few weeks ago, we listened to testimonies of people in the baptismal waters saying, that was this way and God did this to me. So, so, some people even like unable to finish their statement themselves in the moment overwhelmed with the power of God. That's what I long for. Now, don't, don't miss Paul's point. He's not saying like, hey, I just came to be unpersuasive and not to give you anything. He says in verse six, no, I actually came to impart something to you. He says, in my focused style of unimpressive rhetoric and weakness and fear such that God's power could be demonstrated, I came to give something to you. We've talked about Paul's style. Now let's talk about God's wisdom. Look in verse six. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. Paul says, hey, don't, don't miss me. I actually want you to build your life on something. And the word wisdom, as Paul's using it in this passage, isn't a direct synonym to worldview, but it's real similar. 
Like the worldview you walk with is just a summary of answers to a lot of questions you ask yourself whether you're aware of them or not. Why am I here? Who am I? What's good and right in the world? What's broken in the world? How do we restore what's broken in the world? How is what's right in the world rewarded and acknowledged? You're living according to that worldview all the time, whether you're conscious of it or not. The tragic thing is most of us aren't conscious that we even have a worldview, let alone that we're walking in one that's highly nuanced. Paul says, hey, I I want you to build your life. I want your worldview to be based on God's power, not on man's wisdom. So I'm laboring in everything I do, both in the content of my preaching and its form to give you something, Paul says. I'm trying to give you God's worldview. That's what I'm trying to give you. And I'm inviting you to abandon your own. And and he talks about um, the worldview of this age and of the rulers of this age. And he's, he's comparing and contrasting passing ways of being versus an eternal way of being. Passing maps of how to live your life in contrast to one true eternal map of how to live your life. And the essence of the wisdom of this world or a worldview that's passing away puts you at the center of it all. It says, hey, you can fix your problems. You can heal what's broken. You define what's right. Other people should respond to you. Like Paul says, hey, you, you know that regardless of who's in power, that's passing away. My wife and I had a conversation this week with a friend about some stuff her grandmother believes and says. And she was like, oh my gosh, I love my grandmother. She's a super sweet lady. But if you spend more than an hour with her, you're gonna get some stuff that's really not politically correct in this day and age. And we kind of laughed, right? She's like, yeah, if granny even like walks outside her porch, she's gonna get canceled. This is how life is gonna be. And as we laughed about our grandparents, you know, archaic or inappropriate whatever worldviews, I was struck with the fact that my grandkids will say the same thing about me. And, and there are ways that I'm choosing to live my life and build my life right now that my grandchildren will be horrified by. Paul says, hey, What's proffered to you in the world as a way to live and stuff to build your life on, that is passing away. That the time is limited and the style of it is as limited as the time that are currently ticking on your genes. Like those genes will soon be out of style. So, so will your worldview. Paul says, hey, I have said everything I've said and done everything I've done to give you God's wisdom. And he's told us that it's about Jesus Christ crucified and it's about God's righteousness. Now I wanna close by asking, what do you do with that? What's your response? How do you respond to God's wisdom as you hear it and encounter it in God's word? I found myself reading this passage this week thinking like, well, who can even receive God's wisdom? And how can we receive God's wisdom? And who can't receive God's wisdom? Because Paul actually answers all those three questions in verses six to 10. Who can receive God's wisdom? How can we receive God's wisdom? Who doesn't receive God's wisdom? And and the first people he says don't receive God's wisdom are the people who have committed rigidly and without willingness to bend, committing to following the worldview of this age. 
He says, hey, if people would have understood the wisdom of God, they wouldn't have killed Jesus in the first place because Jesus is the wisdom of God. Manifest, walking around in our midst. You're like, well, how am I supposed to live? God just left us to himself. No, he didn't. He came to us and walked around and said, I'm the way. You want to know how to live? I'm the way. The the people who don't receive the wisdom of God are people who are so committed to their own ways of being that they can't see Jesus for who he is. Who who does receive the wisdom of God? And the answer is kind of funny to me. He says in verse 6, we do impart this wisdom among the mature Now, I'm new here, so you probably haven't, well, actually, you probably have guessed really quickly. I'm not the most mature person in the room, in any room I'm in, ever, even when I'm with my kids. Now, I have a burden for the church to grow up and for all of us to, like, take a developmental journey where we stop calling slack authenticity and vulnerability. It's another sermon for another day. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's not talking about developmental maturity. And he's not talking about intellectual maturity as if you have to get to some spot to be ready to receive the wisdom of God. He's talking about a moral maturity. Meaning, he's talking about the people that are able to have God's wisdom imparted to them are those who realize their place in the world. That not only are you not the solution to what's wrong with the world, but you're part of the problem of what's wrong in the world. And it's not just that there's stuff that's broken around you. There are things that because of your own pride and because of hatred that stems out of that pride, there's things not just that are broken around you, there's things that you have broken wickedly. The maturity that Paul is talking about is a maturity that says, I am broken. I am weak. I am dirty. I am wretched. And the problem exists inside of me. Therefore, only God can come from outside of me and mend what's tattered and cleanse what's filthy inside of me. That's that's the kind of maturity Paul speaks of. So check this out. You couldn't have walked, you you could have spent your whole life not walking with Jesus. This could be your first time in a church or the first time since you were 13 in a church. This could be your first time to hear the word of God. And today you could be counted among the mature that receive the wisdom that God desires to impart to you. you. You could be, a morally mature person that acknowledges you are not the solution to the problem, you are the problem. And only God can heal and mend and rescue and cleanse and straighten and save. Paul says that, that's who receives this imparted wisdom. And the last question, and we'll close here, how do you receive this imparted wisdom? Look at verse 10. Paul says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. How do you receive the wisdom of God? And the answer is, God gives it to you. 
God reveals it to you. He offers to you what you could not discern or articulate on your own. Once you realize like, man, I am not the smart one. I am not the wise one. I'm the needy when God says, gotcha. Here's everything you need. And he reveals Jesus as everything we need. Because Jesus, friends, is for us the wisdom of God. When Paul talks about this hidden and secret wisdom, he's not saying that the wisdom of God is something that's difficult to figure out. He's saying it was impossible to figure out. God had hidden it in the person of Jesus until Jesus stepped into the light and said, here I am. And anyone who will hear his invitation and receive it, you will be given the riches of the wisdom of God now. So what do you do? I mean, if you're here with us this morning and you've never heard the word of God or the wisdom of God, what, what's incumbent upon you this morning is to hear and respond, to acknowledge your moral predicament and your need for God's righteousness. And if you're here this morning, you're like, man, I followed Jesus for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, my whole life. What, what's your responsibility this morning? To hear the wisdom of God and obey it. Like, all God's asking for is your obedience to hear, to acknowledge, and say, you're right. I walk in that. And if you've never heard the wisdom of God and you're hearing it this morning, obey it now for the first time. You'll call that your conversion. We'll celebrate that in the waters of baptism here. You've been walking with Jesus for a decade. Hear the word of his wisdom, Christ crucified for your righteousness, and obey it. Build your life on it. Because when Jesus commissioned the disciples, he didn't say go into all the world and preach the gospel and teach people to consider what I said. He says teach people to obey every word that came from my mouth. Let's pray together. Jesus, even as I say, like even as I make the admonition to obey I acknowledge that apart from your spirit and apart from your power, none of us will hear your word, see your word, receive your wisdom, or obey. None of us. The mature that receive the wisdom of God and walk in obedience in, in accordance with it are those who bear the spirit within them. So spirit of the living God, would you move among us? Would you awaken faith to obey? Would you awaken faith to repent? Would you awaken faith to save? And would you manifest your power among us? Would you do it now through signs and wonders? Would you do it now through healing? Would you do it now through bringing people from darkness into light, from death to life? God, would your power be preeminent, not just in what we teach, but how we live, where we hope, what we love, where we run to for shelter. Holy Spirit, would you awaken us to respond now, I pray in Jesus' name.